Okay, good to see you this morning. Let's uh, open our Bibles to Luke chapter 16, Luke 16. And uh, we will begin our study at verse 16 this morning. Luke 16 and verse 16. Just keep in mind that in this section that has been going on here for a number of chapters, uh, Luke has been dealing with uh, uh, discipleship, uh, what it looks like to be a disciple, and also uh, looking at end times, looking at uh, what life ought to be, uh, looking also at the idea of how a disciple should think. Uh, we <clears throat> getting them to think more in terms of the way God thinks. And we see that, of course, in the parable of lost things in chapter 15. And then moving right on to the way we ought to look at eternity compared to how we ought to look at the possessions of this life. And so he's in the middle of talking about that, the parable of the uh, uh, unjust steward, as some of the old versions talk about it. Parable of the unjust steward, uh, pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, and you'll notice at the very end of that, the uh, Pharisees scoff at Jesus. They mock Jesus. They ridicule him down in verse 14 because they are lovers of money. So things are going to key off of that particular statement there. So that's what will set us up then for uh, beginning in verse 16 and going through the end of the chapter. Let's, uh, let's begin with uh, prayer. Father, we're very grateful for all that you do for us, uh, especially giving us this wonderful opportunity to be together and serve you as we join our voices and our thoughts and our minds on you. And please continue to help us uh, to always think in terms of your will and not our will. Bless us as we study this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's, uh, let's take a look at this section, and, and uh, here's the challenge. <laughs> now, when you look at this, I'm sure you were challenged, but here uh, is an obvious challenge, verse 16 down through verse 18. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. All right, that's keying off now, just to give you a little help there. That's keying off the Pharisees' response to the parable of the unjust steward. Of they were lovers of money and they ridiculed him. And Jesus condemns them for justifying themselves before men and not appreciating what God says. And then all of a sudden, law and the prophets until John. And then divorce and remarriage. And then verse 19, going into the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Your first response to that. Which doesn't seem to go together. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. I, I, and I can tell you, for years and years and years, I've read that and went, what? <laughs> Why does he seem to just all of a sudden go off the rails here on an entirely different subject? And, and we would immediately um, give ourselves a, a figurative slap in the face and say, now we know the Holy Spirit's not doing that. So I need to find what the connection is. Can anybody think or see some kind of connection? And again, my hint is 
for you the response of the Pharisees ridiculing Jesus because they're lovers of money. I mean, over all these stories tend to have a theme, all these yeah. stories that Jesus tells, of money. Yeah. Over and over, the lost coin, lost sheep, the lost, you know, the lost sons. Over and over, it's just money. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, your point there is good. Because it, even in the parable of lost things, and then immediately a parable of money, there's a contrast. You can't be lovers of both. <laughs> if you're lovers of money, you're not going to be lovers of the things that God desires and God cares about as far as lost people. Uh, so there's even that, that contrast. And then comes up here and his, his statement uh, in verse 16 and 17 uh, about the law and the prophets. So look just at 16 and 17. Um, what is being preached? What, what's, the, what's the message first before you try to make a connection? What's the message of 16 and 17? <clears throat> it's a message that the Pharisees wouldn't have understood well. Okay, first and foremost, there's obviously some things that are about to change here. Law and the prophets are until John. All right, so the law and the prophets are until John. And after that, what's happened? Okay, the good news of the kingdom then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. All right, now there we, there we are. So let's, let's just take that statement, good news of the kingdom of God. If you remember our wonderful Isaiah studies, you could remember, and what we commented about even earlier in Luke, what is the good news of the kingdom of God? God reigns. God comes back and is now reigning again after what? What did he do back in the Old Testament? He left he separated from them. He allowed them to be conquered. He allowed his people to be destroyed. And now he comes back and he's reigning. The good news of the king has returned. Law and the prophets are till that. What were the law and the prophets doing in respect to the kingdom? How would you describe what the law and the prophets were doing in respect to the kingdom? Preparing the way. Yeah, they're preparing the way. All right. So what Galatians 3 says that they were a tutor. Yeah, they were a tutor to bring us to Christ. So the law and the prophet, and if you're a Pharisee, what do you think? All the prophets forever, right? Are they going to change? Are they going to end? Uh, the king will return. I mean, they're looking for a kingdom, but they're looking for a kingdom to exalt them under the law of the prophets. And as we said, this is now going to be uh, offered to, the, to everyone. The good news of the kingdom now has come. So John is that transition point there. Uh, and it has been that way for about, what, 1,500 years? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 1,500 years. Uh, you, you've had the law and the, the prophets. Exactly. And, and, of course, the Jewish understanding of how that would uh, work out. Uh, and then he, he follows up. Now, now, first and foremost, of course, your God reigns, the kingdom, good news of the kingdom, and who is the one who is about to reign? 
Jesus is, right? So Jesus is the God who is, who is God who is returned to reign and take over the kingdom. And God has placed it in his hands. So here is a message to them. The kingdom is upon you. It's again just another statement that has been made many times by G John and Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. The reign of God is at hand. You need to recognize who the king is. You need to prepare yourself for who that king is. So that's a message to them as well. They've heard him say this before. And then those weird words, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dotted law to become void. And then the comment about divorce and remarriage. What about the force of your way into it? Oh, yes. And, and, there, and there's that. And, and everyone, uh, thank you for that. And everyone forces her, his way into it. Now, that's been a much discussed little uh, statement. If you're reading maybe a different translation than ESV or New King James or American Standard Version, you would see something different. Anybody have that? What the difference is? Yeah, urgently invited into it, okay? <laughs> so so there, there are other versions that take it away. So I, I read a bit on the Greek authorities on this. I'm not a Greek authority except for the sausage a Greek makes. But, uh, but that, they, 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 I've read some of the things, and, and, and they say it, it has all to do with how you're going to uh, look at particular verbs within the Greek. Is it something that is being done to the kingdom or is it being something that is urging people to do to get into the kingdom? And so each translator is struggling with that as to which it would go, which of course when that happens, what do we have to concentrate on? Context, that's right. Uh, so in this particular case, guess what? Doesn't do you a bit of good to be a Greek authority. <laughs> the, all of them will differ on which way it could be. And uh, as I was reading about it, it was interesting. They go, well, here's all, the, here's all the authorities that take it this way. And then here's all the authorities that take it this way. And uh, you go both ways. And we have that, that reflected in our translations as well. Uh, yeah, Wayne. All of this may have to do with the way they change God's law because all of these things he talks about, you know, God didn't mean for it to be that way. And it goes back to the passages just before that. God knows your hearts. For what is exalted about men is an abomination inside God. We change it. Yeah, good, good, good. And, and I think the, the, that, that seems to be, I'm, I'm agreeing more with the ESV. Uh, translation on it, it seems to be that uh, even though you could you could certainly say people are are uh, really urged to to get into it, but the context seems to be rejection and changing. In fact, if you go back to Matthew 11, where this is, Jesus says it similarly under similar circumstances, Matthew 11, and you notice uh, verses 12 and 13. Matthew 11, 12, and 13. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Okay? So has, has the kingdom always suffered violence? Yes. God's kingdom has suffered violence of people 
constantly trying to take it over, make it their own kingdom. Remember the parables of, of the vineyard and the vineyard owner is being, and the vineyard uh, servants are being thrown out because uh, they want to the, take over uh, the vineyard, and that's in Isaiah as well. Uh, so there's all, all those things. And then Matthew's account follows up for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, if you really accept it, the Elijah, who, he is the Elijah who is to come. Uh, so the similar thing, and I, so I, I would, I would, uh, I think, agree with the idea that this is people are violently trying to make the kingdom what they want to make it, and that's illustrated, as Wayne said, by these previous verses, uh, where uh, Jesus is uh, rebuking them for how they evaluate uh, discipleship. So in the context of money and riches, how did the Pharisees evaluate true disciples of God? Yeah. They had a baseline acceptance of people that were Jewish. But once they got past the, are you Jewish? Second assumption would be, those that are blessed physically must be serving the Lord. Those that are not blessed physically must be failing somehow. Exactly. They, they couldn't really explain how non-Jews ended up in both of those situations because all those were <laughs> problems. So, but, but for a Jew, they then kind of looked at, looked right. at the world and split it right. Yeah, riches were, were a comment on God's blessings on, on uh, that, that particular person. Uh, this, Oh well, yeah. A lot of people lot look, of people look at that. they attribute their bless their physical blessings to uh, God must accept me and, and uh, like me more than other people. Must be, must be doing good because that's it. I've taught people who had that uh, had that belief. Uh, this this again even goes back to the parable of the good Samaritan. Uh, why would a Levite and a priest pass by a man who's dying and bleeding on the side of the road? Well, he must have deserved that because uh, that wouldn't have happened to him if it had to been that he was doing something evil. It goes back to the friends of Job. Friends of Job had the same uh, idea. Uh, all right. So, so that that in that context is illustrating that. Now, kingdom is God's reign. God has returned. God is now about to start his reign, his kingship. Jesus is about to do this, and therefore he has all authority. And he's communicating that to them. You're going to try to hold on to the law and the prophets. The kingdom of God has come. The king has come. And you're going to need to repent and accept the rule of the king. Okay, that seems like we're, where we are so far. Make sense? And, and so people are trying to take it away from him. This goes to Psalm 2. What were the nations doing? What were the Jewish nation doing? They're trying to take the kingship away from God. They are they're mocking and, and trying to take that kingship away. And God laughs at them and says, I will set my king on the throne anyway. So that's that same feel 
that is there. Then Jesus turns around and says, none, you know, everything the law has said, not, not a bit of it, not even a dot uh, of the law, and it would be the smallest little mark in, a, in the Hebrew, uh, in a Hebrew letter. Uh, not even that is going to pass away. It's not going to be made void. Why would none of it be made void? Because it all has to be fulfilled. That's right. It all is going to have to be fulfilled in Jesus. It's all going to have to come about at that particular point. So none of that is going to pass away, but it is going, it is pointing to the good news of the kingdom. And then this sudden statement uh, about uh, whoever divorces his wife. Uh, and marries another is committing adultery, and the one who marries the one divorced is committing adultery. So this sudden, <laughs> and, and you're just like, whew. Luke is the briefest of all uh, of the synoptic accounts about divorce and remarriage. Mark talks more about it. Matthew talks extensively about it. But Luke just shoves that in there. Can you scope back and think why he would just throw that in there? Seems a bit odd. Well, they did, but why in this context is he bringing it up? Okay, and where where in the law, where in the law would you learn that uh, this? idea of divorcing a wife and remarrying would be wrong. Where in the law would you go for that? You'd go to Genesis. That's right. You'd go to Genesis chapter 2 and the two should become one flesh as Jesus extensively uh, states in Matthew 19 and since they're one flesh uh, let not man separate. There is no allowance then for divorce if that is the law then from the beginning. So this is not going to be taken away. So it's, it is a, it, it is a uh, overall a center statement on this authority that is given by Jesus. Uh, uh, Taylor, you can say something. And it seems like it was an example of how they were trying to take the kingdom Good. by force and make it about what they wanted and their interpretation, right. their traditions, rather than what the law actually said. Exactly. And, and in fact... Now you can go back to chapter 14, 15, and 16 up to this point, and you can see all the ways they were violently trying to take it by force. In chapter 15, they're trying to exclude people. They're excluding the tax collectors and the sinners and anybody who doesn't fit within their little uh, paradigm. So they're excluding them. In chapter 16, they're excluding anybody who's poor. And, uh, and, and so they are glorifying themselves because of their riches. Uh, and, and then right on in the last few verses there of uh, 14 uh, through 15, where they're justifying themselves based on their standards instead of God's standards and exalting themselves. So all of those things are how they're reframing the kingdom to fit their beliefs. You just set it up to say, just in a different way. And I know it's, it may be difficult to understand what you mean by you know, violently trying to take the kingdom. But they were trying to make it into something that fit their way of life. Good. And, and call that the kingdom. 
And that happens today. Yes. Randomly. Yes. Uh, that's why we have thousands of different factions yes. that call themselves God's church. Yeah, excellent summation of this. Uh, now you, when you, now we have that. Now you know what you need to do when you're teaching somebody in this particular section. What you want to do is summarize then what you've already seen from 14, 15, and 16 of how they are trying to turn the kingdom into fitting their way of comfortable life and the way they live. Do not people do that today? Yes. We're all under that danger of trying to take God's law and conform it to my life instead of taking my life and conforming it to God's law. That is so typical. Am I going to read the Bible through the lens of how I want to see it or am I going to read it through the lens of how I need to change me to fit it? That is a major problem for every single person. Nobody can say, no, that isn't a problem for me. <laughs> That's always a problem. There's a tendency to want to read it to make sure I don't have to do much change. And I think this, this what seems to be an abrupt comment about marriage is, is Luke is using it as an illustration only to say, yeah. here's an example. Here's an example. what I'm talking about. You're trying to make the kingdom be something different than what God intended. Yeah. And, that, that, and I, I think he, that, that's exactly right, which is the reason it's so brief. He, he isn't really intending to go into a big dissertation on that. He's intending to show them an example of one of the major areas that they are violating God's law and trying to conform the law to him. Uh, we, we're going to spend, by the way, I'm not, we're not going to take a bunch of time. This is all we're going to spend on, on this divorce and remarriage thing because that's all Luke wants us to do. Uh, my plan is, by the way, I've been making plans for a lot of the teaching that we will do next year. And some of this, a few of the Sunday nights, one of my plan is, is for us to get together on a Sunday evening and actually do mostly a class type situation where we're going to just talk about, we're going to look at text, Matthew 19, uh, Matthew 5, and, and we'll discuss uh, those things and get more in depth on it because it's not in the parameters of, of this. But I think it's time that we, that we do that uh, with one another and, uh, and, and really try to, to come to an understanding and make sure we're on the same page of what this teaches. But here he's just laying that out. And, and the most I will, I think, mention is, is remember that at this time the Jews have two different rabbis that they have been following. Rabbi Shammai or Rabbi Hillel. Uh, Shammai was the least appreciated as far as his view was concerned. Shammai's view was you could divorce only because of immorality, sexual immorality. Whereas uh, Hillel's belief was you could divorce for a, a, a multitude of reasons, uh, including burning the morning biscuits or your wife. Uh, uh, my favorite one is if your wife uh, does a, a pirouette in the street, you know, she does a little twirl. That was embarrassing. I'm divorcing you. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, there, there, he had all kinds of crazy things like that. And of course, what did the multitudes prefer? Well, they preferred uh, Rabbi Hillel. And so Jesus coming along and just whacking this right here and uh, saying commits, by the way, the old King James said committeth, uh, indicating a present tense, not a one-time thing. This is you're, you're committing uh, adultery. So there's, there's the most you would probably want to say. That. However, if you are teaching somebody 
and you were teaching through Luke and had not gone through Matthew or Mark. This can oftentimes be a point where, you, where they are going to add, be, maybe because they've been divorced and where they're going to stop and say, you need to explain this more. We need to look at more. Which, at which point you would go back and, of course, take a look at Matthew 19, etc. And we will talk about the ramifications of that later. All right. So everybody, any other questions or comments on these uh, verses down through verse 18? Okay. All right, very good. And then, then right on to this, now the, the great uh, uh, parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, and, and so let's just read this, and then I'm, I'm going to look at, there's a, just a million little <laughs> observations that need to be made here, uh, and uh, really good stuff. So there was, a, there was a rich man, or as I like the older versions, there was a certain rich man, which is the word that's used in Luke's parables all the time. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with, the, with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to tip, dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus like, in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay. Just let's now let just things that you saw in there that are significant. What are what are the things you saw in there that just stand out to you that we need to just put it all on the page before we draw final conclusions? Now, to me, this seems different than other parables. Other parables are vague and actually names the guy. Yeah. By the way, as you mentioned, the name the name Lazarus means dependent on God. So it may be that Jesus used that particular name to, to just send the message, uh, the difference between this rich man and one who is poor but depends totally on God. So there is that one little statement there. Good. Brian. Seems like we, this is one of the few stories that gives us another picture. A little loud, This is uh, another picture that we see provides information what's after death. Yeah, yeah. And, and why would you think that Jesus just suddenly, you know, in this, in these, these things about riches, why suddenly uh, give us give a picture of, of uh, after death? Well, I think I think also inside, you see that there's communication going on. 
yeah. ability to see. Yeah, and, and that may be, you know, we, we can talk about why that detail is there, but, but for now, how, how were the Pharisees thinking when they thought about after death in comparison to what Jesus shows them? Yeah, this would have been reversed in their minds. They're over there uh, having a blast with Abraham. Uh, and uh, it's, the, it's the poor man who's over there in torment. That's what they would say. And Jesus just pulls that curtain of death back and says, I want you to take a look. You know, you guys have put all your confidence in here and now and, and, as, and, and what God values, I mean, what you value is what God values. Let me pull that curtain back and let me, let me give you a little look. What a shocking, if you're the Pharisees, I, I, I would think that uh, your knees ought to be knocking at that particular point. What a shocking look. House. They were using their their wealth and their health as reasons to say that they were justified before God. And right. so you see here that you can't tell how much God loves you based off of how much <laughs> yeah. you have or how That's exactly right. You can be this poor beggar laid every day at the gate of the rich man, hoping to just get some crumbs, hoping the garbage is taken out and he can, he can eat from what's left over at the rich man's table. Uh, and, uh, and he's the one who is saved. And the rich man who thought he was being blessed by God is the one who is lost. Good. Danny. Do you see any significance in the fact that he calls a child? Yes, I, I think, it, and the significance there of when, of when the rich man says, Father Abraham, Father Abraham, what is the hope of every Jew? Yeah. We're descendants of Abraham. We're the offspring of Abraham. It's almost like the rich man is going, I think there's been a mistake made. <laughs> Something isn't quite right. Father Abraham, remember me? I'm your child. <laughs> and then you're reminded, of course, of statements by Paul in Romans 9, 6. Not all who are Israel are of Israel. <laughs> Good. And not all who call on the name of the Lord. That's right. We're yeah. all children of God. Yeah. We have the opportunity to call on the name of the Lord. That's right. But not all children are going to be yeah. As some of the other parables, many are called, but yeah. few are chosen. Good, good. Tim. An observation I make is that the things in this life are not permanent, but the things in that are permanent. And that's what chapter, that's the beginning parable of the unjust steward. He's being taught, he, I mean, he gives the, the he, he's, he's this guy who's cheating his master, but he's doing something really smart. He knows he's about to get kicked out, and therefore he is preparing for that by using unrighteous mammon or unrighteous money. He's using that to protect himself when he gets, has to go to uh, have a place in the eternal. Uh, that's right, Brian. I'd also, I'd also say that uh, uh, two things. One, the warning that what is asking for mercy what did he yeah. when he was on the surface to the poor. 
Good, good. Yeah, he, he's, he's really pleading for just a little bit of mercy here. And there is no mercy. Mercy is gone. It's, it's over. That's right. I don't this man did wrong. The reason Lazarus' name is used indicates what he did wrong. Yeah. That the, the poor man depended on God and the rich man depended on his God. riches. And, and, and I think uh, some study said, well, he didn't really say he did. In fact, it didn't say that he didn't give the crumbs. Well, yeah, well, but but there, there is an implication that he did not do something for this man. Uh, in fact, it, it says that he he desired verse 21. He desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Didn't say he ever got it. He said he wanted it. And he's laid there at the gate this this way all the time. It, he's not being cared for. The, the, he's got sores. What did, the, what did the Good Samaritan do? He took the guy, he cared for him, he bandaged his sores, he, he did what was necessary to actually bring him back to health. This rich man does not do, does not do any of these things. Seems to have the same idea of uh, the way the Pharisees looked at things. Okay, what, what are some of the other things that uh, stand out here? Some of the simple details, yeah. Um. At least in some way, the rich man is aware. So he's aware enough, one, that he knows that Lazarus is dead also, um, and asks for service. <laughs> that, to me, is one of the funnier words. Um, would you have Lazarus? <laughs> Do you know how, long, how many times he's done that in his life? Uh, hey, uh, somebody over here bring me some water. Hey, somebody bring me this. Somebody bring me... He's had servants. He's used to bossing people around. And now he gets in this situation and he thinks he... Hey, Abraham, uh, you know, that Lazarus guy, would you have him... <laughs> Come on. He hasn't changed a bit. He's just sorry about where he is. And uh, that's, uh, that, that's shocking. What else? Yeah, the dogs gave him more comfort than the rich man did. Right. Dogs are yeah, licking his sores. And I would imagine that felt pretty good. That's be the one time I'd be happy about a dog. <laughs> dogs licking his sores. So there, yeah, there's, there's that too. All right. What's, what's some of the other things? Yeah, Brian. We've talked about this before when you brought it up, but uh, how he wants to communicate with his family. That's, I think, the, the, the real shocking thing. And this is, that's the, the part here, one of the major parts that you want to stress to someone you're teaching. That making a change for God is a matter of your will. It is a matter of changing what you desire to do. It is not a matter of there's not enough evidence. The evidence is plentiful. 
about the existence of God, His Son, the kingdom of God, the word of God, the evidence is there if you will pursue it and seek it. He's already said this back in uh, chapter, chapter 13, uh, where strive to enter into the straight gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and not be able. There's no reason why you cannot get it. And somebody raising from the dead is not going to change your life. In fact, there's illustrations of this over and again. Another Lazarus, <laughs> John uh, chapter 11, was raised from the dead and the reaction of the Pharisees was to kill him and Jesus. <laughs> so evidence is not the problem. That's not the problem. The problem is, do you want to serve God? Do you want to submit yourself under King Jesus? That's the problem. And boy, you need to drive that home. With, with somebody you're teaching. Are you going to submit to Jesus or not? Yeah, and, and I know you can, you can sit there, and I've said this to me, you can sit there and talk about, well, if I, if I do, then this is going to have to change, and this is going to have to change, and I'm going to have to do this, and, I'm gonna do, and boy, there's a lot of hard things. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it, it will, becoming a Christian, will ruin your life. It's supposed to. <laughs> and But it will give you an eternal home. Uh, that brings up the point to me is relatives and parents and things of that who, who, who go to hell, they would want you to become a Christian because they don't want you there. Yeah. Good. I think that's such a, such a good point. Uh, and I, in fact... I have made that point in funerals at times when I'm preaching a funeral for someone who everybody knew was not righteous. Uh, and I've mentioned this particular uh, parable. Uh, no matter where your loved one is, if your loved one is in with the Lord, what do they desire for you? That you would serve the Lord. If your loved one is not with the Lord and is in the condition of this rich man, what would they want for you? Not that you would come and be with them. <laughs> You know, you hear dum-dums sometimes say, well, you know, all my friends will be in hell, so I guess I'll just go there too. No, that's like saying, you know, I, I wish I was dying of cancer like this person over here so that we could both be comforted. Now, I don't think that's uh, the way that works. <laughs> you don't want to be in that position. Uh, so even the, even the person who is lost, what is their great desire? That you wouldn't be, that you would change. Uh, that, that should be a great urging and I think a really good point. Chad. I had a study this past week with a person on this text and I allowed them to get off the point of they were concerned about the location. Oh, okay. Paradise, the yeah. Gulf. Yeah. Good, good. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because this is a text where it will lead to a, a, a discussion about Hades and Seth. Let me, let me just, we've got about three, four minutes here. So let's, uh, let's remember some facts. I think everybody here knows without having to look this up. Where did Jesus go when he died? He went to Hades, right? So the scriptures plainly says that. P Peter references it in Acts chapter 2 in his sermon, that Jesus went into Hades. 
All right? Uh, so there is that. When Jesus was on the cross, and he's talking to the, uh, the, to the thief on the cross who repents and, uh, and says, be with, uh, I want to be with you when you come in your kingdom. What, is, what are Jesus' words? Today you will be with me in paradise. So just as we see in this, there is a part of Hades that is, we could say, the good side, <laughs> paradise. And then there is a part that isn't. Both the rich man and Lazarus went into Hades. The word Hades just means the unseen realm. It was understood as the grave of the spirits. It's spoken that way in the Old Testament uh, many times. Sometimes you will see the reference of descending into Hades um, uh, in, in a good way. Like Jacob says, I, I will go into Hades, into Sheol, uh, to in mourning for my son. Uh, and David talks about the baby who, who he lost and died, of being reunited with this baby when he dies. So there's good side that's, that's indicated in the Old Testament. But then there's also... Uh, the picture, of course, as we're seeing here, of the bad side, and uh, and the and the key text would be in in answering that and bringing that up. Look at Revelation 20, right quick. Revelation 20, and and this this really helps people when you're uh, looking at this. Revelation 20 gives a uh, a good a good picture of that. Verse 11, Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it, from whose presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Now here's the key thing, without having to go into all the the stuff before. Then death and Hades were thrown to the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he's thrown in the lake of fire. So the lake of fire obviously is what Jesus referred to as hell, which is different than Hades, because Hades and death now are destroyed, because there's not going to be any more death, etc. So that realm is destroyed, and everybody's judged, some to the lake of fire, some, of course, to be in the New Jerusalem with the Lord. All right, so that, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it, of what you saw in the parable. Two sides when you die, two sides here, good and bad, waiting for judgment. Sometimes I will picture it with people like, okay, you are arrested for the crime of murder. You go to jail until the judge and the trial and the judge renders the judgment and sends you to the penitentiary. The jail is like Hades. It's like that period of time in which you're waiting for the final judgment. Here, the, we'll, there's a few more things we can talk about from this next week. But here's, here's a real key, key statement, key point here. One second after death, you will know. One second after death, you will know. You want to stress that with somebody you're teaching. And in fact, you can know now and don't have to be surprised like this rich man. There's your, there's your powerful point. Okay? All right. Thank you. Really good. Uh, and we will pick up a few more things here and then go ahead and, and get going in chapter 17.